Okay, so this, again, like I said, this is new for me. I've never taught with a microphone before. Um, we'll see how it goes. But for some reason, first hour, I started losing my voice. I don't know where that came from. I don't know if it's what it is. But anyway, we are starting our summer series, Welcome Back to Grace Life. Uh, we are going to be looking at the book of 1 John. This will take us all the way through Labor Day. Now, whenever you read the book of 1 John, several things are quite striking. At first blush, it's a book of tests. There are a whole lot of if-then types of statements that seem to subject the reader to a series of examinations as to the authenticity of their profession of faith. This was one of the first books that I had gone through in a rigorous verse-by-verse -verse study as a new believer. And for me at that point, it was, it was a little unnerving, a little disconcerting to go through this. I mean, you guys know the phrase acid test? Have you heard that phrase acid test? It's a phrase that was coined in the mid 1800s. It was the era of prospectors bringing in their finds and the belief that they had struck it rich. They, they had it all. Unfortunately though, what often happened was they had actually painstakingly mined out fool's gold, iron pyrite, instead of actual gold. Well, to tell the difference between the two, the buyer would have a, a black stone, and he would take the nugget, and he would rub it across the stone, and it would leave a mark. He would then take to that mark uh, and uh, apply to it a drop of nitric acid. And if what was left on that mark dissolved, it was fool's gold. If what was left on that mark did not dissolve, it was actual gold. That test is still used today to determine if it's gold or not. In many ways, 1 John is the acid test for believers. Apply a few drops of this book to your life, and what is left, if indeed anything is left, is precious. If your life fails the acid test, then friend, we need to talk. So 1 John can be intimidating, it can be humbling, it can be unsettling, but despite our initial reactions, Christian, this book was written to be encouraging to you and to a fledgling church. So by way of introduction, let's look at a few things. First, authorship. Who wrote the book of 1 John? It might seem to be a bit of a who's buried in Grant's tomb type of a question, but not necessarily. Nowhere in the book is the author identified. Most of the other letters in Scripture and most of the letters of that period start off with, such and such author writing to such and such recipients and that was the common opening for that time this letter contains none of that so the evidence for authorship doesn't come from self-identification it is instead the indirect evidence that points us to the author there are several lines of proof that show us that the author of this book is indeed the apostle john now understand it really wasn't until the last century that any question of who the author was even came up. Early church fathers almost universally attributed this book to John the Apostle. Giants such as Irenaeus, Tertullian, uh, Dionysus of Alexandria, Polycarp, Papias, they all quote directly from 1 John. They all attribute authorship to John the Apostle. Several of these men were disciples of John. They knew him directly. So if this book was not written by him, they would have said so. Second, the author is clearly someone who was an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus Christ. Speaking is one with direct connection to Christ, which immediately narrows down the field of potential candidates dramatically. Third, the author writes with authority, freely giving commands, and thus is someone with requisite spiritual authority. Also, he writes as an individual. Some have suggested that this book was written by a school instead of an individual. He writes as an individual, not as not as a school. When he uses the word we, he's actually including the apostles, not writing for some uh, mysterious school. So in addition to this, there are many similarities in the writings of John's gospel to 1 John. Now I've given you examples of, this, of these similarities on the back of your handout. The one I would draw your attention to, though, is the word paraclete. This word is used exclusively by John in his gospel and in the letters of John. No other author uses this word, only John. In addition to these phrases, there are many common themes between the books. Love, light, life, witness, truth, sonship. 
The only person who fits all these criteria is John, the disciple of Christ, who was also known as John the Evangelist, to differentiate him from John the Baptist. Now, John the, John the Apostle was deeply spiritual, even at a young age. He was originally a follower of John the Baptist, and he became a follower of Jesus when John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, Look, the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God. That's when John, John the Baptist was saying, Look, this is the guy I'm telling you about. This is the guy we're waiting for. That's when John the Apostle left John the Baptist and went and followed Jesus. Now, when we think of John, I think most of them see him as a small, weak, and perhaps a little bit effeminate man. We see him leaning onto the breast of our Lord with, a, with sort of puppy dog eyes, gazing into the face of Jesus. This idea of a meek John is expressed in medieval paintings of John, where you see him, because of his youth, painted as beardless and soft. Other times, we would think of the aged disciple, more of a grandfather figure, kind and compassionate. Neither of these caricatures, though, would seem to align with what the Bible describes as his actual persona. He was the son of Zebedee. He was the younger brother of James, also a disciple. His mother was Salome, the sister of Mary and the mother of Jesus, making them first cousins. Now, I don't think it's all that far-fetched. Okay, I don't have chapter and verse for this, but... I don't think it's too far-fetched to believe that Jesus, Peter, and John knew each other growing up. Nazareth and Capernaum, where John grew up, are about a day's walk from each other. When feast times would come, when sacrifices in Jerusalem were required, the Jews in Galilee would gather to make their journey to Jerusalem in large groups. This provided companionship and protection for the caravan. There's no reason to think that Mary would not have sought the company of her sister on the journey bringing the families together. John was from an upper middle class family as evidenced by the fact that they owned a fishing business, they had several boats, they had servants, as well as a large house in Jerusalem that later served as a meeting place for Jesus and his disciples. In addition, he was acquainted with the high priest showing that the family had status. Now according to tradition, he was the youngest of the disciples. When you read the gospels, Looking at the Gospels, he comes across as outgoing and at times volatile. He was sectarian, narrow-minded. He was competitive. Remember in Mark 9, he confessed to the Lord that he had tried to stop someone from ministering in the name of Christ because they weren't one of the disciples? They're not in our group. I better put a stop to that. That's, that's, what, that's John's thinking. For him, that was unacceptable. He was decisive and brash. He and his brothers wanted to call down fire from heaven onto a Samaritan village that did not accept the teaching of Christ in Luke 9. Remember that? Okay, that earned him the name Sons of Thunder, Boanerges, Boanerges. Well, actually, the literal translation of that moniker is Sons of Rage. That's how it's literally translated. But we, we've changed it to Sons of Thunder. He was right in the middle of the debate among the disciples as to who would be greatest in the kingdom. He was ambitious. He was also strategic. He and his brother wanted to be seated next to Christ, one on the left and one on the right, when Christ came into his kingdom, but they didn't ask Christ directly. Instead, they used somewhat less obvious as an intermediary, their mother, Jesus' aunt, Salome, to ask. He was confident, perhaps a little bit too confident. Jesus' reply after their ignorant request for seats of honor was, are you able to drink the cup I'm about to drink? And what was their reply? Yeah, we are able. Well, when the time of testing came and Jesus was arrested, what did John do? He ran. He ran. He couldn't withstand the test. He ran. Now, from his writings, we can see that he was very direct and demanding. He wrote with a natural authority. He wrote with a vocabulary that was simple and clear. He was very certain of truth. John used in his uh, writings the word truth 45 times. They're also filled with absolutes and clearly demarcated contrasts. Walking in light or walking in darkness. If we are born of God, we cannot sin. We, either we are either of God or of the world. If we love, we are of God. If we do not love, we are not of God. Pretty stark contrasts. Pretty cut and dry, right? Not a lot of gray with John. 
There just wasn't. It's a teaching style that I think he probably learned from the Lord. Papias, who was Bishop of Hierapolis and a student of John, called him a living and abiding voice for God. That's how he was seen as a teacher. From 90 to 95 AD, he was overseer of the churches of Asia Minor. It was during this time that he wrote the Gospel of John and his three epistles. Aside from Luke and Paul, he wrote more of the New Testament than any other human author. He was the last man standing, the last of the 12 disciples by several decades. He was the elder of the church of Ephesus. Although he would have been well into his 80s at the time, he was still a fiery preacher and teacher. Earlier in his life, according to Eusebius and Tertullian, he was arrested and taken to Rome. He was to be executed by th being thrown into a vat of boiling oil. When he was cast into, the, cast into the pot, no harm came to him. And so he was then exiled by Emperor Domitian to the small isle of Patmos around 95 AD. It was there that he received from the Lord the book of Revelation. He, along with James and Peter, was part of the inner circle of Christ. They were witnesses to miracles and events that the others did not have the privilege of seeing. The raising of Jairus' daughter, the transfiguration. And you can imagine how a young, ambitious, and self-confident man would let this extra attention and uh, glorious privilege go to his head. Walking along with the other disciples, he's saying, man, you guys should have seen what Peter, James, and I saw. And they're like, well, what is it? He's like, I can't tell you. Jesus told us not to. It's just between us and him, right? And all the while, he's preening about his own self-importance that actually had nothing to do with him. It was all about Christ. Totally missing the, the message. He was also one of the three disciples who Jesus asked to stay with him at Gethsemane. It was to John that Jesus entrusted the care of his mother, Mary. Remember, none of Jesus' siblings were yet believers. Tradition states that John stayed in Jerusalem with Mary until her death, which is why there are no missionary journeys of John recorded in Scripture. He was taking care of Mary the whole time as he was charged to by Christ. He was also seen as the pillar of the church in Jerusalem, along with James, the half-brother of Christ, and Peter. John was very interested in truth, and he could have a very hard edge about it. But at the same time, he was called the apostle of love, the apostle of love. He wrote more in the New Testament than anyone about the importance of love and how love for each other and love for the Lord is to be a hallmark of the Christian community. Now, how did this man go from wanting to call down fire from heaven on unbelievers to being the apostle of love? One word, Jesus. Jesus corralled him and mentored him. Jesus loved him and died for him. Jesus needed the strength of John, his determination, and his resolve, but many of the other more negative attributes needed to be harnessed. The selfish ambition and pride needed to be removed. The competitive sectarian John was then molded into a caring pastoral figure who aggressively loved both truth and others which meant he was kind, warm, open, and caring, while at the same time, he was certain and unwavering. He stood and taught, as we will see in 1 John, the, uh, he understood and taught, as we will see in 1 John, the importance of love and truth in binding the body of Christ together. John died in 998 AD under Emperor Trajan. Jerome tells us in his commentary on the book of Galatians, that in his last days, John was so frail he had to be carried to church. He had one constant refrain, my little children, love one another. When asked why he repeatedly said that, he replied, because it is the Lord's command, and if this alone be done, it is enough. Now the recipients, just as there is no author named, there are no direct recipients named in the letter leading to the idea that it was to be a circular letter, one that was to be distributed among several churches. This would very much line up with, with why the author is not identified. John wrote this letter in the waning years of his life while he was pastor of the church of Ephesus. At the time of the writing of this letter, Ephesus was one of the major spiritual and intellectual hubs of Christianity. Now we all know from our study of Revelation 
that Ephesus sat on a mail route, a mail circuit of seven churches, all of which are mentioned in Revelation. It is most likely that John, while living and pastoring in Ephesus, was also overseeing these seven churches. As the last remaining disciple of Christ, he would have had massive spiritual authority over them and been very well known to them. He would have been expected to provide direction and instruction to these churches. This would explain the lack of identification of both the author and the recipients. A named author in the introduction of these letters would be far more expected if the author was unknown to the readers or a lesser figure. The fact that neither author nor recipients is in the letter tells us of the familiarity between both the author and the readers. The close relationship between the author and recipients is further evidenced by how the author addresses them. Dear friends, brothers, children, this is a pastoral care and a fatherly tenderness for the, for the readers. So the occasion of writing, so we've established John the disciple wrote the letter to the seven churches in Asia Minor. The next question that must be asked is, why? Why did John write this letter? Well, we're going to start our study of 1 John in Acts 20. So open up to Acts 20. The reason for the writing of 1 John traces back to Acts 20. Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem. He wants to deliver the gifts of the Macedonian churches to the poor in Jerusalem, and he wants to be there for, before Pentecost. He stops at Miletus, a port city about 20 miles southwest of Ephesus. There he meets with the elders of the church, many of whom he would have appointed. Remember, he founded the church in Ephesus. And he tells them, starting in verse 28 of chapter 20, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. The savage wolves Paul is warning of are false teachers. These prophetic words were spoken by Paul in A.D. 57. They were fulfilled several decades later while John was pastor at the church in Ephesus. 1 John was written as a response to the false teachers and the false teachings that had already started, even at this young age of the church. There are false teachers coming along. These false teachers are people who, just like Paul had predicted, were from within the body of believers. Well, how do I know that? 1 John 2.19 tells us, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. And it's clear from 2 John that at least some of these false teachers were busy seeking out proselytes through their own evangelism and itinerant missions as John warns the children not to accept them into their homes or even greet them. As to do so would be to participate in their evil work. That's 2 John uh, verse 10. Now, we don't know what these teachings were, were exactly, but there is a lot we do know about them based on what John wrote in his response to the false teachings. Remember, when this book was written, it was the end of the first century. While most of the New Testament had already been written, and all the authors except John had passed into glory, the entirety of the canon of Scripture had not yet been assembled. They didn't have a New Testament yet. There was not a complete uniformity of belief among churches, and because of this, false teachers could come into the churches and plant seeds of doubt into the minds of the believers. Maybe we missed something. Maybe there's something else we need to learn. The primary purpose of writing 1 John was to bolster the assurance of believers in John's churches by providing to them a clear presentation of the gospel. John's goal was to provide for them and for us, by extension, criteria by which to evaluate the claims of the false teachers and to reassure all believers that they are of the true faith. 1 John also represents secondarily a polemic against false doctrine and false teachers. It's his, it's his answer. So, what was the false teaching? Like almost all heresies and false doctrines, the false teaching centers on Jesus Christ. They deny some aspect of him. 
his divinity, his humanity, or his atonement. This heresy was no exception. Given the arguments made by, by John, the heresy he was confronting at the time was most likely an early form of Gnosticism. Gnosticism, spelled with a G, comes from the Greek word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, and it's based on the idea of secret or special knowledge that the average believer does not possess. There are several things that characterize a Gnostic system, and this is on your handout. First is dualism, dualism. It's the idea that there are two sides to the universe, the material and the spiritual. All material substance is inherently evil and cannot be good. All spiritual substance is inherently good and cannot be evil. Since matter is evil, it cannot have been created by a good god. Instead, it was created by a demiurge, an evil sub-god. Since matter is evil, it is beyond redemption. Since the spirit is good, it is beyond corruption. Therefore, it doesn't matter how you live here and now on earth. Your evil body can partake in as much evil as you desire and still not corrupt your good spirit. And that's how, exactly how the Gnostics would live. They would live debauched and depraved lives with complete disregard for God's moral standards. This apparently was the belief of the Nicolaitans. Nicholas was part of the early church. It was mentioned as one of the first group of deacons in Acts 6-5. Uh, he tried to incorporate obscene pagan rituals into Christianity. And he's called out specifically by Christ, or at least the philosophy is called out specifically by Christ in Revelation 2-6 and Revelation 2-15. Your only hope for salvation in a Gnostic belief system is through intense self-knowledge. There's a divine spark or a divine essence within you that is trapped in your evil mortal body. You must look inward for God. You must look inward for God and reawaken your divine spark through gnosis or special knowledge that reveals the true nature of the divine essence within you. A deeper understanding of spiritual truths will liberate you from the ignorance and bondage of the material world. And fortunately for you, O gullible one, there is a spiritual guide or a teacher or a guru who can guide you into the path of self-enlightenment, often for a price. The second feature of Gnosticism is docetism. Docetism. This is from the Greek word dokio, which is, which is uh, the translation of to seem. To seem. <coughs> Again, material is bad, spiritual is good, given that there's no way that a perfectly good Christ could have taken on evil flesh. So, he, there's no incarnation. There's two solutions to this that they propose. First, Jesus didn't actually have a physical body, but only seemed to have one, thus docetism. Only seemed to have one. Christ was not crucified but instead, someone else, Simon of Cyrene, is the most likely candidate, was made to look like Christ and was crucified in his place. This heresy still exists today in Islam. That's exactly what they teach. Jesus then is an aeon, A-E-O-N. He's an aeon or an angelic emanation from a higher God. This false teaching is answered decisively in today's passage. The second possibility is that Jesus the man was only temporarily inhabited by the spirit of Christ. The spirit of the Christ came into the body of Jesus of Nazareth, who was born of natural means to Joseph and Mary, came into the body, came into his body at his baptism and left prior to his crucifixion. Instead of the Christ dying for our sins, only the man Jesus was crucified. This was popularized by a named a man named Serinthus, uh, he was a contemporary of John the Evangelist, and he was known to him. He was educated in Egyptian and Greek thought. He tried to fuse these beliefs with Christianity. John counted him among false teachers. Irenaeus says John called him the enemy of truth. And this heresy is also answered by John in this epistle, but later, uh, chapter five, 5, verse 6. You will still hear echoes of this heresy in teachings of people like Richard Rohr. He will talk about the cosmic Christ that is still around. This is, guys, this is why you have to know this. 
Gnosticism is not some dusty piece of history. It's still around. These heresies are still going strong. Third facet of Gnosticism is elitism. Elitism. Given that your spiritual advancement and ultimately your salvation depend on your ability to obtain special knowledge, Gnosis, the Gnostics would divide the world into two types of people. Those who can obtain this knowledge, the pneumatoi, and those who cannot, the sokichoi. The, the sokichoi, uh, sokikoi, I'm sorry, sokikoi were little better than dumb beasts who could never advance beyond this evil physical realm. And that's us. We're the dumb beasts. The pneumatoi were the super spiritual people who understood their own divine spark and could spiritually float above the mundane evil here, all the while participating in all the evil they want, because spiritually they're up here. The result of this separation was obvious and quite predictable. Those who were enlightened, the pneumatoi, including those who had left the fellowship of believers, would look with disdain on those who had not, and the evil, brutish uh, sukakoi, who remained in the church. Gnostic heretics, because of their belief system, had license to hate with impunity. They could hate. It was okay. They're just dumb beasts. You can hate them. So these early proto-Gnostics are threatening all sorts of teachings of the early church. The incarnation, the nature of man, the need for a godly life, the necessity of love. There are obvious fundamental issues, and John deals with each of them in turn. And he does so decisively. There is no wishy-washy equivocation at all in this book. John writes to his churches, no, K-N-O-W, 36 times in this book. Gnosticism is still around today in the form of New Age movement and cults. Scientology is just rewarm Gnosticism. So with that, by way of introduction, turn your Bibles over to the right, find Revelation, and then go backwards, go left. Go past Jude, you're going to run into the epistles of John. We're going to start with 1 John. Verse 1, we're going to do the first four verses. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Again, John dispenses with the customary greetings and gets right to the meat of the message. He doesn't start with a neat illustration to draw the hearer in. No fanciful turn of phrase. He just gets to it. The churches are under attack, his sheep are scared, and he is anxious to answer. He starts with a bit of a run-on sentence. The first four verses in this uh, chapter are actually one sentence where the main subject and verb we proclaim isn't even revealed until verse 3. So before he gets to we proclaim, there are four relational clauses regarding the object of the opening verse. Word of life. Word of life. And John's famous prologue to his gospel, he starts with the same subject, word, logos, but this time he adds a qualifier of life, Zoe. And if you look at his gospel, you see he is now juxtaposed. He's now combined verse 1 and verse 4 of his gospel. In verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 4, he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In his, apostle, or in his epistle, he has shortened the identifier to Word of life. So what he opens the epistle with is a series of descriptors concerning the word of life. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands. Notice what John is using, what John is using here for the word. He's saying what was or what we, a genderless word. Instead, he could be saying he was or who was, using the masculine who in the Greek. 
John is, in fact, broadening his description to include more than Jesus, more than just Christ. Also, we would note a couple of things in these opening verses regarding the word of life. First, the word of life is eternal. It is eternal. Christ himself, obviously, is eternal. We know from the Gospel of John that the eternal word was life. He has always existed. There has never been, nor will there ever be, a time when he does not exist. He is from the beginning. Now, in addition to that, the gospel message of Christ is also from the beginning, which is what else he's putting in there with Christ. The gospel message of Christ is also from the beginning. God did not create humanity only to be surprised when we messed it up in the garden. The entire Godhead, the Father, Son, and Spirit were in full agreement from eternity past on the plan and the gospel message of Christ. God the Father would create a people who would fall. God the Son would redeem them through his own sacrifice. God the Spirit would indwell and sanctify them. This is not a new teaching that now needs to be re-understood or updated to you, Christian. This is the message from all eternity. These proto-Gnostics were teaching a new gospel and a new truth, as do the cults today. How often do we hear the snake charmer of the cult proclaiming new truth or new revelation available only within the cult? What was given before is no longer sufficient, but it must be updated or supplemented. The earlier messages were garbled and they need clarification. This is true of many modern cults, Jehovah Witnesses started off with a new revelation or an update. Mormons, Islam, Seventh-day Adventists, Christian Scientists all start because the message got garbled and let me help you out with it. I'll give you the new message. I'll give you the truth, quote unquote. They all rely on a new message to correct the old. Not so fast, says John. Not so fast. Both the message and the messenger are eternal and unchanging. This is the same thing that Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote in Jude 3, contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. That's it. No new revelation needed. Once for all. All we need is all that has been revealed. Thus, this is also the warning from the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 13.9, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. What I've given to you is what you need, is what he's saying. So the message is eternal. Second, the word of life is perceptible. Perceptible. This is a direct response to the rising heresy of the day. The false idea that Jesus only seemed to have a body is clearly in the mind of John as he is penning these words. Refuting this heresy is so important to him that he hits it in verse 1 and comes back around again and hits it in verse 3. Look at the verbs that he uses. Heard, seen, looked at, touched. And then in verse 3, seen, heard. John is clear. This is not an apparition or a phantom. He, Jesus was not an aeon or an emanation. He was not a figment of our imagination. Jesus had a real audible voice that he used to con convey truth to his disciples. John is stating that he audibly heard the voice of Christ. This was not an impression on John's mind. It was not the still small voice of conscience. Christ's voice created physical sound waves that resonated upon the eardrums of those who heard him. John was an ear witness to the teachings of Christ. The word heard is in the perfect tense, which means it is a completed past happening with ongoing consequences. And the word used in the Greek also indicates it was more than a single event. John heard Christ over a period of three years. Next, Jesus had a real physical form that could be seen. It could be heard, it could be seen. It was opaque and not translucent like spirits would be. Now you might think that John is repeating himself in verse 1 when he says, what we have seen with our eyes, and then he says, what we have looked at. Well, the first, what we have seen, horeo, is the literal act of seeing. It is using your physical eyes to perceive something. 
John is ruling out the idea that Jesus' appearance was only a vision and not real. He was seen with more than imagination. He was not just metaphysically viewed in the mind. The second instance where he says what we have looked at is a different word, teameo, which means it has a different sense to it. It's not just the physical perception of something, but it's more the complete study of something. It implies a contemplation or a wondering involving careful and deliberate visual perception about the object. In John 1.14, the same word is translated as behold, behold. So what John is saying is we physically saw him, we carefully observed him. So Jesus had a real physical form that could be heard, could be seen, and he had a real physical form that could be touched. That could be touched. The word here is more than a quick brush by or one-time light stroke. It is more akin to handled. Literally, the, the word means to grope like a blind man. You've lost your sight. All you can do is feel. You feel as much as you can. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Luke 20, uh, 24, 39 in his resurrected appearance before the disciples. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me. Same word. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. There was actual substance to him. John in his gospel records that at the Last Supper, he reclined into the breast of Jesus. This would not be possible if Jesus did not have tangible material structure to his body. John reinforces the point by explicitly stating that he touched Jesus with his hands. A normal physical sense. So it's only after establishing the physical truths of what he's talking about that John gets us to the name, the word of life. Now this phrase, word of life, has obviously two parts to it. First is the word, in which John is clearly referencing his gospel. As we learned several weeks ago when Bryant taught on this passage, John in the opening to his gospel is talking about the eternal pre-incarnate Christ, one with the Father. So the word is Christ. The word is Christ. And this would fit with the context of our passage. The second part of this phrase, life. Life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel that speaks to the salvation of men. It is the good news of redemption. It too is eternal. This is the message that was proclaimed starting back in Genesis 3. It was confirmed to Abraham, Jacob, and David. It was reaffirmed throughout the Old Testament. It was promised through the prophets and finally realized in the incarnation of Christ. Paul identifies it in Philippians 2.16 as that which we cling to in a wicked and perverse generation. Holding fast to the word of life is what he says. Hold fast to it. So it is everything, this word of life, it is everything about Jesus Christ and his gospel message. That's what it is. That which, that's what John's talking about. Verse 2 functions sort of as an excursus regarding this word of life. And that life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So the word of life was manifested. Was manifested. The salvation proclaimed from the beginning was manifested. The word here means it was revealed or to make visible that which was hidden. It is a direct reference to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It is when he took on flesh that the eternal life of God was revealed to man. John 5.26, Jesus talking here, For just as the Father has life in himself, so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And it is through the word of life that was manifest that we too can have eternal life. Christ said when, when challenging the Jewish leaders seeking to kill him after healing the man in Bethesda because he did it on a Sabbath, he said in John 5.39, you search the scriptures because you think that by them you have eternal life. It is, in the, it is these that testify about me, saying I'm it. I'm that word of life you're looking for. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I'm it. I am the incarnation of the good news, he's telling them. 
Now, it is only after now, after an extensive preamble, that you get to the subject and verb of this opening sentence. And they're found in verse 3. We proclaim. We proclaim. So everything leading up to the subject and verb, we proclaim, is that which they are proclaiming. It is a very telling word that he uses here, proclaim. He did not say sell. He did not say make available to you for a limited time. He did not say market. He did not say prepackage. What John did was to proclaim, to openly declare to all who could hear him the truth with a capital T with the intent of this knowledge being passed on. It is open and free to everyone. Open source AI, even better. No, there is not a secret. It is not costly. It is not for the select few. You don't have to do anything special to get this knowledge. It was given to you, just as it was given to John when he says it was manifested to us. We didn't do anything to bring this about. We were entirely passive. It is not our truth that we divined through meditation. It is not something that we concocted or figured out. It was manifested to us, is what he's saying. You see John's humility here, which would be a far cry from the false teachers of the day and the false teachers of today. If anyone had reason to claim special status or special knowledge, it would have been John as the last living disciple. He could have made up any story he wanted or spun it all to his own advantage if he wanted to. There was no one there to check him. No one with even close to the amount of authority that he could have commanded. He could have set up a system where all income goes to him. He'll decide what you need or don't need. He will distribute to you what he deems is appropriate and keep the rest for himself. He could have done that. Women, power, luxury, could have had it all. Just like Joseph Smith and Muhammad did. That's what they did. John did not. John didn't. Instead, he realized that he had been entrusted with the most important thing humanity has ever had, and that is divine truth. Divine truth is the only truth that matters for all of eternity. He had been given it by Jesus Christ, and he had been given authority to preach the divine truth of salvation to all men, meaning his experiences with Christ were meant to be shared. They were not meant to be kept private. John was chosen as a disciple for this task. He was chosen to preach and teach for the entirety of his life, and he would not violate the trust that had been placed into him. Paul echoed this understanding of the charge as well in 1 Corinthians 9.16, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to me, he says. We get at the end of verse 3 and 4 the reason for proclaiming the word of life and for writing this letter. Two reasons, fellowship and joy. Fellowship and joy. The reason for proclaiming the word of life is found in, uh, at the end of verse 3. So that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. The term here for fellowship is a familiar kononia. <coughs> This term means more than just relationship or potluck. It's a richer and deeper term than that. It can mean, in a legal sense, it means a partnership where two people go into business together. It also means a close bond and a two-sided relationship between participants. This is an essential element of Christianity. It is impossible to be a Christian and not share some level of kononia. Here, John is giving us two directions for the believer's koinonia. The first, our fellowship is outward. Our fellowship is outward. John says, so that you too may have fellowship with us. The Christian community at this time was not somewhere any self-respecting Roman, Greek, or Jew wanted to be seen. You didn't want to associate with Christians. They were, there was a stigma associated with them. They were seen as cannibals. They were eating flesh and drinking blood, right? They were seen as incestuous, calling everyone brother, sister. You married your brother. What? They were seen as traitors. They didn't swear allegiance to, to Caesar. 
So to have fellowship with believers was actually to share in a fellowship of suffering, reproach, and scorn. So you can perhaps see the motivation here to call yourself a Christian, yet abstain from meeting, figuring, well, you know, I'm okay alone. I'm still a Christian, but I just don't want to be seen with them, right? Christian, we are never to be alone as a believer. To be Christian is to be part of the body. We are to function within the body, for the body, and supported by the body. If your level of involvement in church includes Sundays and occasional Wednesdays only, if you're in a race to see who can be first out the door to make it to Pizza Ranch before the rush, you have an issue. Look at your phone. Maybe not now, but look at your phone sometime. See how many of your texts this week were from somebody in the body who is not a first-degree relative. How many of your texts had something to do with church versus something at work? How many of your texts were spiritually encouraging to you? When was the last time you prayed with somebody in the body? When was the last time you had a conversation with somebody in the body about spiritual issues? Now, maybe you're saying, you know, Doc, I'm fine where I'm at. And maybe you are. Maybe you are. Maybe you are disciplined and you're having your devotions. Maybe you are taking every thought captive. Maybe you are loving your wife as Christ loved the church. You honor her. You put her needs and wants before yours. You and your wife get along great. You're praying with her and for her. Maybe you are doing great and you have it all spiritually. Maybe you truly do have it all together. But there is one thing I can almost guarantee you. Even if you do, the guy next to you doesn't. He hasn't cracked his Bible in a week. His marriage is a wreck. His kids are a mess. He prays only in emergency flares. He's hanging on by his fingernails. Christian, there is no circumstance that affords you the opportunity to go at it alone. If you're the one struggling, you're supposed to reach out for help. If you're the one who is stronger, you're supposed to reach out to help. That's how it works. This is the essence of Christian kononia, partnering together in and through the trials of life. You share the burdens, you multiply the blessings. The second aspect of our fellowship is that it's to be upward, upward. John says, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Our fellowship is to be here in this room among each other. But it's also, and here's an amazing truth, our kononia is to be with God. The God of all honor and might is our close partner. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. When you are saved, you immediately go into partnership with God, with Jesus Christ, and with the Holy Spirit. The Lord and you are now working toward the same goal, advancing the kingdom of God. And Christ prayed for this kononia in his high priestly prayer of John 17. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, my apostles. I don't ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, guys, that's us, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. We have the same fellowship with each other that we can have with God the Father. That same intimate, close partnership. Guys, that should blow your mind. There's much talk today about communing with God. You'll hear it all the time. And it's, it's all over the internet. What does that mean? And it's not a bad question. It's actually, it's a good goal. But you must understand that the way we achieve upward fellowship is through outward fellowship that John is commending to us. When you come here to fellowship with us, with other believers, you are at the same time fellowshipping with the Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. It is an inescapable connection between the body of Christ and Christ. If you want closer fellowship with God, seek closer fellowship with the body. 
The last verse in this passage gives us, gives us the reason John is writing this epistle. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. You see, a direct result of this Kononia fellowship is joy. Joy is the outward expression of a deep-seated sense of security and fulfillment that manifests in a state of peace and contentment in any circumstance. It's not giddiness, it's not glee, it is not purely an emotion, though it may prompt many happy sentiments. It is a state of being that is unrelated to your condition and dictates your response to events. You guys seen the interview by the um, University of Oklahoma softball team? They just won the national championship, and they were interviewed after it. And uh, one of the questions, and I don't know if this was a plant or what, but it's, it's amazing. One of the ESPN reporters asked a question, you know, the great team, great season, long winning streak. How do you keep the joy alive? And the answers are amazing. I mean, they're right out of scripture. And if you haven't seen it, look it up, you know, Oklahoma softball press conference, and it'll go right to it. It's incredibly encouraging. So look it up. Now, Christian, when your life when your life is buoyed by those around you and your faith is buttressed by the community of believers, that's when you can experience the most joy. By yourself, it's hard. That's why I think most Christians who live outside of the Kononia Fellowship of Believers are joyless. They can't experience real joy because they don't know the joy of fellowship first. It is the initial building block and the capstone of joy with a capital J. John is saying to his readers, I want you to know these truths and to be certain of them so that you will have fellowship with Christ and we will have fellowship with each other. This will bring you full and final joy. So Christian, what do we take from this? What's the take home? First, know that 1 John was written as a letter of encouragement and confidence for believers. I know he has a lot of tests. They are rigorous and daunting. But John the pastor is reassuring you as to your salvation. Second, know that your faith stands on the firm bedrock of eyewitness testimony. John, as the last living disciple, felt the urgency to proclaim what he had seen and he possessed the wisdom to write it down for us. Finally, maintain the fellowship of believers. Plug in. Serve and be served. Know the Christian life is meant to be lived in concert with one another. All right, thanks for listening.